Hi. Lovely to see you all again. Wasn't too long ago, was it? It's only a few weeks ago. But it's, uh, it's absolutely lovely to be back. And glad to be preaching to you from Psalm 19. Shall we read Psalm 19 together? It's not a, it's not a long psalm, is it? It's a lovely thing to kind of say out loud corporately, I think. Um, for the director of music, a psalm of David. So something to be sung and said corporately by God's people. Okay, Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. Let's say it together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, to start with, I've given you one of these, um, a little handout. Uh, The first part of it, um, it's just the overview of the first six verses, so the, the headings of, of what we're going to work through. And just on the back is something perhaps interesting to take away home and have a go at later on. Just a very simple little thing that maybe helps demonstrate some of the application from the sermon, a bit of DIY theology with, with some of the interesting stuff that we'll, we'll think about. Um, so you can look at the, the kind of front page and then take that home and use that later if, if you should wish. <coughs> Well, a man walked into a hospital uh, with severe abdominal abdominal pain and was treated by the nurses. But a little while later, he gives birth to a stillborn child. Yep, you heard me correctly. That is the tragic real-life story that happened when a woman 
who claimed to be a man went into a hospital and was indulged in her insanity, I suppose you could call it. Uh, It's a very tragic tale, but that did actually happen. Why did that happen? Well, Romans 1, just to give us a bit of context, tells us, doesn't it, that because of our sin, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven. And because God's wrath is revealed from heaven, it's, wrath is scary, isn't it? We don't like to confront it or to face it. And so what we do as a people, a sinful people, when the option is to either confront God's wrath, the only alternative is to either pretend like God just doesn't exist at all. No God, no wrath. And guilt is artificially relieved. So what we tend to do, isn't it, as a, a people just in, in the world in general, we, we tend to deny God in creation and so we can ignore him in scripture. But, as Romans 1 continues, when we do that, God gives us over to the kind of confusion and chaos that I've just described. And we make a mess of life, And the further we go into our depravity, the harder and harder it gets to turn back to God, to possibly recognise him in the world or in the Bible at all. Harder and harder to ever experience his his grace to recognise that. And even as Christians, we remain susceptible to ignoring God, don't we? Because we still sin as Christians... And every sin we commit, even after our conversions, it, it tempts us, doesn't it, to, to hide from God in our shame. And the guilt of having sinned when we know we actually ought to be growing in grace. I'm sure you've all had those moments where you've been struck by the awareness of your own sin. And you've just felt the need to just cower away from God too ashamed to turn to him, too ashamed to experience his mercy and grace. And you just think, God couldn't possibly be pleased with me in this moment. But it's that kind of backwards trajectory that leads into the kind of madness of the world that we live in today. What we have then in Psalm 19 is King David's spiritual rehabilitation program for the morally confused. It's a simple three-step programme to help us recover our right minds by discovering once again that there is indeed a God out there who, despite revealing his wrath, longs to show mercy and grace. First, David acknowledges, reminds us to acknowledge God and creation. That's step one. Then God, uh, David, sorry, he encourages us to listen to God once again in scripture, in his word. And then step three, the the final uh, part of the the rehab program, as it were, is to find redemption in Christ. Let me just pray for us now as we continue with hearing from God's word. 
Father in heaven, you are a truly gracious God and you have gone out of your way to reveal your mercy and grace to us, particularly in the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. We are sorry for the sin that put him on the cross and perhaps even more sorry for not accepting the forgiveness often that he offers us and just hiding from you in the the guilt and the shame of our sin. Even as Christians, Father, we are tempted to do that at times. Please help help us. Please enlighten us through your word this morning as David seeks to do. In Jesus' name we pray. For his glory and for our joy. Amen. Well, if you'd look down with me at verse 1 of Psalm 19, that would be a great uh, place to start. Wrath, as I've said, is a scary thing. The wrath of God is not something that anyone wants to readily face. And, you know, just, just like Adam and Eve, I suppose, in, in the garden, after they'd eaten the fruit, what did they did? They, they went and hid from God, didn't they? And that's often what we tend to do as well, to just act like God doesn't exist. And it's, it's true, the the material world, isn't it? it? It is full of the wrath of God. It's full of the evidence that God has cursed us for our sin and the world. But David knows that creation is also full of the evidence of God's grace. David knows that where there are thorns, there are also roses. And so step one of David's spiritual rehab program for us is to once again acknowledge God in the created realm so that we can rediscover his grace. Look down with me at verse one and you can see that David tells us that creation speaks emphatically. The heavens declare, David says, and the sky proclaims. Speaking of not just the the heavens kind of up there, but he does mean the whole material material universe. It's, It's clear that David wants us to know that creation's message of grace about God is is something intended to be heard, something intended to be listened to. This isn't some quiet little chit chat or a secret to be spoken under hushed whispers. It's a message to be made known. There is also the the kind of notion of importance there, this kind of word of declaration or proclamation. Um, It it just speaks of the the seriousness of this word that we see indeed in all of creation. Uh, Creation also speaks biographically, David tells us, still in verse 1. Uh, you know, like, like any good biography, this, this message of creation is there to help us to get to know God as a person. It's a, a biography of God in a, in a sense. It's a way for us to learn about who he is so that we can relate to him in, a, in actually a personal way, not a, an abstract kind of intellectual way, but in a, a real life way that we would understand each other in this very personal way. Because sin doesn't it? It puts a distance between us and God. We know that. We sense that. But David's trying to tell us here that creation's declaration about God is there to tell us that he can still be known personally and that he wants to be known. And still in verse 1, it's a, a very rich verse, 
uh, David says that creation also speaks specifically about God's glory. And glory is a really brilliant word. It's, it's actually to do with weight. It is synonymous with the word heavy. And so when we talk about the glory of God, you could imagine it like this. If you take all the attributes of God that you can think, all the kind of ways you could possibly describe God, and imagine just taking them one by one, adding them to a great big pile. And the more you throw on there, the bigger and heavier the pile gets. You know, you take his love and you stick it down there. You take his grace and his mercy and his justice and, his, and you end up with this great big pile of heavy, glorious attributes about God. That's, that's kind of what that means. And it's a wonderful picture that David's trying to um, paint for us here. Uh, and that, that is what creation is declaring for us, that our God is glorious, heavy with all the weight of those positive attributes for which we admire him so much. And then moving down into verse 2, we learn that creation speaks constantly. David says that day to day pours forth speech. Just like my daughter Scarlett when she forgets to use full stops when she's reading her school books to us. Um, you know, it's a constant barrage of speech in the world that just simply refuses to stop declaring the glory of God. You can also see in verse 2 that creation speaks intelligibly. David says, doesn't he, that night to night reveals knowledge. That is, this declaration has been designed in a way to be understood by human beings. It, it contains information that is going to be intelligible to us, not beyond our comprehension or our reach. The glory of the infinite God revealed in a way that could be sufficiently grasped by finite man. And then look down with me at verse 3. David tells us that creation speaks effectively. And when David says that, there is no speech or there is no words whose voice is not heard. David means that all whom God wishes to hear this declaration of his glory will indeed hear it. Even those who refuse to acknowledge God will have heard this declaration. Back to Romans 1 again, they would be without excuse, as Paul puts it. They have been informed of the Lord. We have been informed of his glory. And then look down with me at verse 4. This message of God is universal, isn't it? David says that it goes through all the earth to the end of the world. This message goes. God's glory is so magnificent that no corner of creation should be kept from hearing it. And then down to verse 5, creation speaks purposefully. David speaks about the sun, doesn't he? And how the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, only to receive a bride, of course. And, and David also pictures the sun as a strong man running his course, doesn't he? As if on a mission that he will no doubt complete. There is purpose in this message 
of creation, about God's glory. It, it speaks not just of who God is, but also what God is doing in the world. And there is this end goal that we can notice in creation. And finally, in verse 6, David tells us that creation speaks beneficially. Uh, David speaks about the sun, doesn't he, giving off its heat to us. It, it warms us. You know, he is very obviously one of those uh, primary benefits of the sun that makes it valuable to us. And this, this message of creation also, David is saying, this declaration, this proclamation is also beneficial to us as people. Just like the heat from the sun helps our world, helps our bodies, ourselves to thrive and to enjoy life. So does this message of glory have a benefit to us. And so friends, the first part of our rehabilitation from the the madness that we can become so prone to begins by daring to acknowledge God in creation. And I I know it can be hard. I think we all know it can be hard, don't we? Even a fearful thing to encounter the living God. Especially when we are conscious of our sin. Especially when we are, you know, sensing the guilt of it quite acutely in in the moment of it. Knowing that his wrath is revealed because of it. But what David's saying here with this kind of, these first six verses is, Don't be afraid of God, because creation is speaking so emphatically about how good and how glorious he is. In his grace, even though we are tempted to hide from him, he is not hiding from us. And we must acknowledge him in creation. As it's been written, I think Jesus says this, doesn't he, in the Gospels, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so what David wants us to be with these first six verses is a people who are able to look at the whole breadth of creation and acknowledge God in it. You know, we, we all know that some, some parts of creation speak louder and more clearly than others, but David's telling us we have this kind of duty that he invites us into. And we do that very simply by paying attention. Jonathan Edwards uh, is an American theologian, if you didn't know who he is from two, three hundred years ago. And he says this, uh, surely there is something in the unruffled calm of nature that overawes our little anxieties and doubts. The sight of the deep blue sky and the clustering stars above seems to impart a quiet of mind. And what he's kind of saying, along with David here, is just to think of all those little joys that you get in life. Um, maybe you could, you could take the, the sight of the deep blue sky. Uh, for me, maybe it would be standing on, on a beach and just looking out at the, the ocean, you know, behind the, the kind of cliffs on the Sussex coast, I suppose, with the, the sun or the... the the wind just 
declaring glory to you, even in tiny kind of little ways, like just yesterday we're frying up a, a pan full of onions and the smell is just phenomenal, or um, music, or just anything that you find joy or satisfaction in in creation. David is, is telling us that we just look for all those kind of little details and we can actually not just take them at face value as superficial things, that they're actually little things that declare to us something about who God is and what he is like and the fact that he wants to be known by us and the fact that to, be, to know him is a joyful, wonderful, satisfying thing. Um, and so I would just encourage you to, to be really mindful and attentive to those little joy experiences that you do get in life. They are not innocuous. They are deliberate, part of God's design and creation to tell us something about who he is. Uh, and just literally pay attention to them. Enjoy them and, and seek to try and think to yourself, why has God left this little trinket of joy or, or satisfaction in the world to me to experience? Uh, and, you know, if, if this does seem like a strange or an odd thing just to, to think about, just simply flick through your Bibles and look for how it uses so many different aspects of the material universe to describe deep spiritual realities. Um, one of my favourite things in the Bible uh, regarding this is um, the word for compassion that you would read in the Old Testament, uh, written in Hebrew. Uh, I won't pronounce the, it in Hebrew, but the word is rachem, and it's almost identical to the word for womb. So you take the word womb in Hebrew, and you've very quickly extrapolated that into the word compassion, and instantly what you've got there is this image of what a what God is meaning when he uses the word compassion in the Old Testament. You can actually think to a womb and the, uh, you know, a pregnant lady and the love and the tenderness and how she would feel for the kind of baby inside of her. Um, and it, all those little things, like Jesus comparing his love, God is saying, my compassion is like this. You can look to creation to give you pictures of how to understand theology uh, and all the stuff that God says in his word. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And so, as we are able to acknowledge God in creation, the more we see those joys um, as little instances of God's grace to us, what happens is, the more we see those, the more God is endeared to us. And the more we are able to grow in confidence to draw near to him that we might not, he might not merely soothe our experience in life, which is difficult, but that we might even be drawn to consider that he is able to relieve us of the guilt and the shame of our sin that keeps us separated from him, that tempts us into hiding. The thing is, though, glory isn't the gospel. Glory, as we've just thought about, it does suggest to us that God might save. But it doesn't tell us how God can or will. It doesn't give us those details. 
And so once we've begun David's step one of this rehab program to acknowledge God in creation, we have to begin to move on into step two, which is to listen to God in his word. And David starts speaking about God's word. You can see that. Look down with me now in verse seven. And beginning in verse seven, we see, don't we, that David says, the law of God is this greater word. David says that the law of God is perfect. Now he's speaking about scripture, he's speaking about the Bible when he uses that word law. And so you can see, can't you, he, he's suggesting to us with that word perfect that the written down law of God is a more a complete, a more perfect message that it can do something for us that creation alone can't. Um, I realise that we, I read in the, the, the NIV just a bit earlier, I actually prepared the sermon on the ESV, and what it says in the, the ESV is it revives the soul, which I think is a, a lovely way of putting it. David doesn't say that about creation. And then David, doesn't he, still in verse 7, he refers to the testimony of God, meaning that this is a, a true thing that God says about himself. His word is from him, about him. And so it is a sure and a certain thing that we can be confident in. To learn about God in this greater detail in his own words moves us, doesn't it, from being this confused, chaotic people, simple fools, into a people who, David says, can be wise when we gain knowledge in his word that will help us. And then in verse 8, David says that he calls these precepts, just another word um, for the word, for the law, for the testimony, for the, for the Bible, for scripture. These precepts, he says, they are right. And he says that they rejoice the soul. Uh, not the soul, sorry, the heart. That is, in them, in this word, there is this discovery of something that is going to make us glad, something that is going to make us inclined to want to obey them and follow them. And still in verse 8, David says that these commands are pure. Uh, and in the, the ESV, he says that they enlighten the eyes. They enlighten our eyes, don't they, to a knowledge that is going to help us live rightly and respond positively to God. To overcome our fear, to overcome the guilt, and to actually engage with God in the way that he wills us to. And they, they tell us things... Um, these pure commands about how God might save us and they enlighten us in a way which creation, again, it just simply can't do that. And then we move on to verse 9, don't we? David says that the fear of the Lord is clean. That is, when we obey these laws, these precepts, these commands, this testimony of God, it helps us to Fear God and to have a right reverence for him. Not like this kind of servile fear that causes us to cover up and hide away from God. But this kind of awesome reverence that helps us to trust in the innate goodness of God himself. They are righteous rules, David says. Righteous rules for a people who would become righteous themselves. 
And then finally in verse 10, we see David describes these words from God. And David says that they are more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. The best gold there is. David treasures these words for what they are able to bring to him. And then he says perhaps, well to my mind anyway, the most interesting thing in the psalm. He says that they taste sweet like honey, like honey fresh from the honeycomb, right from the source. Interesting to compare the reading of words to the taste of something so wonderful as honey. And and Christian, do you see what David is doing here? He's saying that we can compare the effect that God's word is intended to have on us with the experience of tasting the best honey, the sweetest of foods, full of goodness and nutrition. And, you know, actually, that's, it's at this point that we, we see how God ties the two, uh, David ties the two kind of things together, the two messages. Creation and scripture collaborate and corroborate and, and work together. Uh, the, the one kind of feeds into the other and we're able to use what we learn in creation to enhance even what God tells us in his word. And so Christian, listen to God in his word. And that, of course, means very simply to just go to your Bibles. Because that, as David has said, is where the precious, soul-reviving, heart-rejoicing details are found. The glory of God is declared in creation, but the promises of God are written in the Bible. And so be in your Bibles very, very much. Uh, You all have one, I'm sure, uh, on your bookshelves at home. Um, I I doubt this describes anyone here, but as Spurgeon once wrote or said to his congregation, um, there is enough dust on your Bibles to write damnation on them. It is a very important thing to be people in the world. Or as as another great theologian um, once said, Cliff Richard, um, the devil's not amused when a Bible is well used. Uh, and I'm, I wonder whether you've ever heard this saying before, um, that a Bible that is falling apart is usually read by someone who isn't. It is our job to know God's word very well. Actually, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you get the, the instant application for um, these, these next few verses, 7 to, to 10. Deuteronomy 6 says, this is God speaking to Israel. He commands, these words that I command you today, they shall be written on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk with, um, about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. The word needs to be everywhere, all around us. The importance of knowing it and looking at it, reading it, 
thinking about it, talking about it, considering it is of vital importance to us. If we are not going to slip back into the depravity that sin would lead us into. Um, It's only in God's word do you hear such soul-reviving promises as one of my very favourite um, verses from Jeremiah chapter 31 where God speaks to Israel and he says something that really ties in everything from Psalm 19, I think. God says, For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still, speaking of Israel, calling him a son. And then God says, Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. You see, what you have in that really brilliant verse is God saying, I know I say wrathful things against you. I know I reveal my wrath because you need it. Sin deserves wrath and you need to know about that. He knows that is a hard word to bear. He knows that, that is, there is a temptation in that moment to hear the hard word and to recoil from it, to wish to not have to hear it and to hide from God. God says, I know that, but listen anyway. Therefore, my heart yearns for you. I will surely have mercy on you, declares the Lord, the importance of listening to God in his word. So friends, read your actual Bibles and warm up your deceitful, stubborn hearts over and over again with the soul-reviving truths that you still need to hear day after day, night after night, until, friends, you become so familiar with the sweet honey taste of God's word that you will notice the comparative bitterness of sin's lies about God and creation and that you will long to live God's way and not sin's. And then finally, the sweetness of God's word that David speaks to us about is tasted most fully through God's word when through God's word we find redemption in Christ. And that is step three of David's spiritual rehab program for us. Just look down with me at verse 12 and we'll work through the last few verses there. (coughs) See, listening to God's word to God in his word, sorry, has achieved something. It has drawn David out of his hiding and now, driven by the hope that he sees in scripture, you see that David admits his sin and he asks for forgiveness. And you see there, in David, asking God to declare him innocent, he demonstrates how to complete this rehab program to find full restoration from his sin. And David recognises that God is able to make him so completely innocent that he even asks God, doesn't he, to declare him innocent from hidden faults. Those sins that are so subtle that David hasn't even spotted them in his own life yet. This declaration of innocence, this is no partial cleansing. This is no temporary change. This is a complete status alteration 
that David is seeking, asking for, experiencing from the Lord. And then, having been declared innocent, verse 13, now free from his guilt and his shame, David has learned to hate his sin so much that he asks God for help with those ongoing sins, wishing no more to be caught up in them, that they would not, as he says, have dominion over him. God not only declares David innocence, God God then helps David to keep on battling the sin that lingers and to indeed overcome it. And God provides the ongoing help to refuse sin, to live up to this new status as an innocent before God. David has been fully redeemed, and that is how the redeemed live. And then in verse 14, we see how this transformation is in fact possible. And David praises, doesn't he, with an expression, a bit like a great sigh of relief. A groan of satisfaction where he says, oh Lord, he says, my rock, my redeemer. Those words must have been to him as he spoke them like such sweet honey. He recognises that God himself is his redeemer. That is, God has redeemed him from the debt he owed because of his sin. God has done what was necessary to be able to declare David innocent. It's a truth so wonderful that one would not dare to think it possible if God had not said it himself. And friends, we know that Redeemer by his name, don't we? Jesus. And although we don't have a lot of time to maybe explain why, but I do suspect that Jesus knew that, uh, sorry, I do suspect that David knew that name too. There is plenty of reason in scripture for us to consider that he possibly did. Through Jesus's perfect life, of course, the perfect life that we could not live, and through his death for us on the cross, as Jesus took the punishment for our sin. Jesus gives us the chance, doesn't he, to be, to be declared innocent, to be declared blameless in God's sight, if we simply believe that he did those things for us. You know, even, even though we as a society have ignored God so willfully, We have ignored God with such vigour and industry. Even though we as Christians still have our moments of turning from him, caught lingering in the indulgence of the flesh, Jesus stands as our rock and our redeemer to save us from our sin, to make us acceptable in God's sight. No longer needing to cower from his wrath, but able to repent of living as if he didn't exist and the inevitable spiritual and societal decline that follows. 
So friends here this morning, the the final step of David's rehab for us is to find redemption in Christ, in Jesus, and to repent. To ask along with David that the Lord would indeed declare us innocent too. Because of what we know Jesus has done for us on the cross. And then to just believe that he absolutely has. And friends, I I truly believe from Psalm 19 that repentance is the very best spiritual health care there is. Guilt, it makes us do all manner of truth-suppressing distortions, morally and materially. Guilt makes us lie about our sin. It makes us do whatever is necessary to cover up that lie or to make that lie seem plausible. Even like how we thought about at the very beginning about denying our maleness and femaleness, completely warping the very fabric of our physical identities. What this psalm ultimately leads us to then is repentance. And David wants us to see in creation and scripture that the possibility of repentance exists and then to find in Jesus the opportunity to actually do it. To turn away from depravity and toward Jesus. Because that's what repentance is. It's turning away from one thing into another. To Jesus who alone can make us innocent. Yes, our sins grieve our saviour. We should not deny that. Yes, our sins hinder our Christian walks. But when we have been redeemed by Jesus and we know it, we become people who are now in Christ, don't we? To borrow more language from Paul in Romans. And therefore, God no longer sees our sin, but he sees Jesus Christ and his cross. And for those of us who simply do believe that, that he died once and for all, There is no condemnation now to dread. Our guilt and shame has been washed away in his blood and we are now in the right before God. Able to begin reverting from that depraved state into obedience to God's law in scripture and in nature. Both of which we have abandoned so readily. And and when we do that, we don't just get the joy of salvation, do we? We get the pleasantness, actually, of living in obedience to him. And that pleasantness, when we obey his laws about how we should live in society and together as a people, when we see them working well and actually to our benefit, personally and in society, it just serves to reinforce to us God's goodness uh, for ordering a world that when you live in obedience to him is satisfying. It just reinforces to us that he is a really good and loving God. It reinforces to us his love for us and it serves to help us meet with him for our spiritual needs to be met, to to be assured of his ability and his willingness 
to save us from sin. Christian creation is a word about God and scripture is a word from God. And Jesus as the word is God. And so believe and repent and live. But we will never ask God to declare us innocent from our sins if we cannot see that he has first been declared glorious in the world. And the only extra help I can give you when believing inevitably gets tough, there is times when believing can be hard, isn't there? Whatever trials or sin we are facing, sometimes to believe in God can be a difficult task. But simply work through steps one and two of David's rehab in Psalm 19 again and again. But friends, like I've just said, that the more we repeat those steps, working through both creation and scripture, to see more and more clearly how they fit together, well, the more we are, it is reinforced to us that he can. And just as a, another kind of closing example, um, another little quote from Jonathan Edwards, uh, a very great theologian in, in talking about natural law. David, uh, not David, Jonathan Edwards says this about a silkworm. He says, the silkworm is a remarkable type of Christ, which, when it dies, yields us that of which we make such glorious clothing. Christ became a worm for our sakes, and by his death finished that righteousness with which believers are clothed and thereby procured what we should be clothed with robes of glory. And the reason I'm giving you that example from Jonathan Edwards is that he has gone through that whole process of acknowledging God in creation, listening to him in his word, finding redemption in Christ. And actually, the more you do that, actually, the more clearer that whole message of salvation is seen clearly in in just absolutely everywhere, that Jonathan Edwards was able to look at a tiny little insect, as it were, and actually see the gospel story, actually see a picture of Christ in that himself. And when we're able to see with such clear clarity as Jonathan Edwards does, you see just that salvation message proclaimed absolutely everywhere declaring to us that God is willing and able to save, that he loves to do so in it. There's just little tasters of assurance absolutely everywhere. Uh, and so I think we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, but we're, we're about to sing The Heavens Declare, I believe. And just last thing I would say is just to focus especially on that opening line of um, this hymn. Because it, it slightly changes Psalm 19, doesn't it? Psalm 19 verses 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And um, this song says, doesn't it? It starts, All heaven declares the glory of the risen Lord. And it's connecting the glory of God to Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection for us. You can really take that end goal of Jesus all the way back into creation. It declares about him.
Shall we stand and sing?